Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Creative Project. In today's episode, I'm doing a Q&A. So I actually threw up a question box to my Instagram and invited you guys to send me some questions. I said, ask me anything. I'm an open book. And you guys have sent me so many questions already. So I literally put this up on my stories like an hour ago. And I have like 30 questions already. So I'm going to make my way through it. I don't want to talk for too long. I'm going to keep this to around 20 minutes. And then if I don't get through all of the questions, I will do a part two. Okay. So the first question is how to engage with people as a lifestyle personal blogger on Instagram. So if I take this literally and you're asking, how do I literally engage with people? Then it's just a case of you going through your audience's content and finding a common ground and just leaving authentic engagement there. So for me, I will go for my audience's content. If I see content about dogs, content creation, babies, that's usually stuff that I engage with, right? So I'll just leave an authentic comment, right? So if that's what you mean from a literal sense, then you just want to be yourself, be a human and be social. What I think you might be referring to is like, how do you get engagement as a lifestyle? blogger. And if that's the case, then you want to pay attention to what your audience are telling you and also what your audience are discussing online. So if you don't feel like you get a lot of comments at the moment, head over to TikTok, find another creator who talks about similar things to you. Look at their comment section and see what people are saying. A lot of the time that will give you really great insight into what is on the minds of your audience. And the next time you create a piece of content, you want to talk about that thing, make it topical open a conversation, open a dialogue with your audience. If you know that everyone's talking about a mascara, if you're a beauty blogger, then talk about that mascara, right? It's one of the best hacks when it comes to creating engagement is to talk about something that your audience cares about and something that's really topical. Okay, next question. Do you think TikTok will stay or will there be another app taking over in its spot? So overall, we haven't had a social media app that has reached the heights of TikTok and then just gone away for years. Like the, the last time we had apps that kind of fell through the cracks were the days of like MySpace and Bebo and like, um, Vine and stuff, which was a while ago, right? Those were like the apps that I grew up with because I'm a millennial that, that hasn't happened in a really long time. So it takes a lot for an app to completely die out. I don't think TikTok will completely go away. If it is banned across the US and if that band is in force, then I think other countries will follow suit. For example, Europe, Canada, I think will follow suit. And if that does happen, then the app will be used completely differently. It won't be used by us. I think it will still be used by whoever still has it, but it won't be the same because a lot of the creators won't be on the app anymore. I honestly, at the moment, can't say with any form of certainty whether or not I think it's going to be banned in the US. Like I, if you asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, 60% chance it's going to get banned. Right now, I'm more about 50% chance because nothing's happened, at least at the time of me recording this, for me to assume that the ban is more likely. So I don't know. In terms of one taking its place, I think if another app becomes popular. Um, I don't think it will be one that's the same as TikTok. So there's another app called Clapper. It's exactly the same as TikTok. I don't think it's going to do well because it's an exact replica. Instead, I think it will be an app that is slightly different. For example, Lemonade, right? Lemonade is slightly different. It has a different kind of editorial approach to content and it relies on different formats. So it goes back to the days of carousels rather than um, kind of short form video clips. So I think if an app is going to take its place in terms of like how popular it is, it needs to have a unique setting point. It's not just going to be a replacement of TikTok. 
Okay, so someone left me a comment saying storytelling 101. The first thing I'd tell you of this is to read Building a Story Brand. That's like one of the best books you can read. And do you know what? I'll actually put a link to a YouTube video where they do like a synopsis of, of the book so you don't have to read the whole thing. But that's one of the best books slash videos that you can read because it gives you all the information that you need. The main thing to keep in mind, if we're talking about storytelling 101, so you're like, I'm going to assume that you're new to this. The most important thing to keep in mind is that there is a narrative and there's a start, a middle and an end. And that might sound really, really obvious, but nine times out of 10, a lot of us forget to do this. There needs to be a start, a middle and an end to pretty much all of the content that we're creating. There has to be some kind of hook at the start, some meaty beginning and some kind of conclusion. Some of the best content you see perform well on Instagram or TikTok are ones that have this and they do it in such a simplistic way. So for example, the videos where it's like, watch my dog grow from a puppy to a full-blown dog, right? That has a narrative. You know straight away what you're watching. We know that we're going to start with the puppy. In the middle, the puppy's going to grow up and we're going to conclude with the puppy as a full-grown dog. Such a simple narrative, but it's there. The start, the middle, and the end is there. The other thing for you to think about in terms of just getting started is who the main character is. Um, main character syndrome. Who is the main character and how are you bringing their story to life? If you're going to be creating any form of content where you've got multiple people involved, just know that it's going to be complex and hard for other people to follow. So just keep in mind, like, what is the subject of this piece of content and how are you ensuring that we're focusing on that subject? So a couple tips there to think about, but I'll definitely put a link to that YouTube video because yeah, that book is really great when it comes to storytelling and building a story brand. Hey creators, do you have any burning questions which you really want answered? For example, are you unsure on how to increase your engagement on Instagram? Or maybe you're debating whether to start a membership? Or perhaps you're confused as to which camera you should buy next or what microphone you need to start your podcast. Well, you are in luck because we have the answers. Every Tuesday, we invite you to submit your questions over on our Instagram at thecreatorproject underscore. Do not forget the underscore. We select one question to answer every single week and we provide detailed answers to that question in our email newsletter. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and submit your questions and you also sign up to our newsletter to make sure you see the answers. Links to both our Instagram and our newsletter are available in the show notes. Next question. What's your go-to podcast when you need motivation boost slash a pick-me-up? Oh, this is a really, really good question. Okay, I'm going to go into my podcast now. It's really interesting because I have like such an eclectic mix of podcasts I would say 70% of the podcasts I listen to are like business podcasts and then the rest of them are like pop culture like absolute just nonsense just funny people with a microphone in front of them so in terms of podcasts that I listen to when I need a bit of a boost or a pick-me-up at the moment my absolute favorite is how I built this so this has been around for a really long time it's called how I built this I think it's by Guy Raz or Royaz. And it's essentially a podcast where the host interviews the owner of a really famous company and they take them through the entire journey from when they started the business all the way through to when they maybe sold it or wherever they are now. Now, I personally get so much value from hearing successful people's stories, not just because it's so motivating and it reminds you like, oh my God, yeah, anything is really possible here, but also because they often talk about when times have gone wrong. So if the question to me is like, what do I listen to to pick me up? This is why this is one of the things that I listen to, because sometimes if I'm going through a period in my business where I'm like, things aren't quite working or I'm feeling a bit 
demotivated or I feel a bit lost, right? Sometimes if you sit in that feeling, it could end up feeling a lot worse than it really is. Like you can really stew on that and you can start to think, oh my God, everything's going wrong. What am I going to do? Like it can become such a big deal when really this is just going to be a blip in your radar when it comes to the story of your business and your brand. So when you hear other business owners who are super successful, look back at their life and their journey and talk about the hurdles they faced and the challenges they ran into and the mistakes that they made. Nine times out of 10, they are significantly bigger than whatever mistake I'm currently dwelling on or you might be currently dwelling on. But not only that, you get to hear how they overcame that and then made it out the other end. So it just gives you so much hope, right? Because it's such a realistic story of success rather than us thinking everything has to be perfect. And if something's not perfect, then we're going to fail. It's the perfect opportunity for us to get that reminder that actually every single successful person has had some form of trials and tribulations. So I find it very motivating just to hear people's stories and how they came out the other side. So that is definitely one of my favorites at the moment, but great question. I could talk about podcasts all day. <laughs> What's the best way to build up my Instagram followers? So I don't want to keep on directing people to resources, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't let you know that there are very in-depth resources out there that you could have a look at. For example, I will include a whole playlist to my Instagram growth um, tips. And maybe I'll, you know, I'll pick out one of my most recent Instagram growth, um, YouTube videos so that you can watch that because yeah, I go into way more detail. So in terms of like an overview of things that you would focus on when it comes to building up your Instagram followers, one of the quickest ways for you to do this is to collaborate with other people. Um, it's often overlooked. So you can either do this by creating a post that's shared to both accounts, or you can go live with someone else, or you can agree to both share each other's content, just different ways that you can collaborate with someone else who has an audience of people who are similar to yours. That's one of the best ways and quickest ways that you can actually grow on Instagram. And that has remained the case for a really long time. Like it's one of the most impactful growth techniques that you could do on Instagram. So there's loads more that I'll include in the description, but that is a hack that can really help you speed up the growth process. What was your first YouTube video? Okay. My first YouTube video is actually still the trailer on my YouTube channel, which I need to update. It is a video where I talk about how I manage all of my side hustles. I think I had maybe three or four at the time whilst working a full-time job. Because if you're somewhat new here, not even that new, like if you've, if you arrived within my community within the past year or so, you might not know that my channel used to be called We Side Hustle. That was my brand name. And then I rebranded it after maybe like six or seven months. And the reason why was because I started my YouTube channel initially just to talk about my side hustles. And that was it. I was just going to talk about, I had an influencing account, um, with my other half. So I was talking about influencing. I was talking about running my boutiques. I had two boutiques at the time. Um, I think I had other things. What else did I have going on? I don't know. I had multiple different things going on. So the YouTube channel was designed for me to talk about those things and just to share the tips and tricks that I use to help grow these businesses essentially. So that was my first ever video. And it's funny because I haven't watched it in a while, but I remember sitting down to film and feeling really nervous before I sat down and then sitting down, starting to speak and it just falling out of me. Like it just the words were just coming out of me. I was laughing. I was having a good time. And then I stopped, like I finished recording. And then I went into my, the other room to speak to Jamie about it, my other half. And I was like, that was so much fun. 
I was like, that was fun. I was not expecting it to be fun by any means. I thought it would be really challenging and it'd be a while before it was fun. But honestly, I sat down and I was like, this is, this is it. Like, this is a good time. So from that moment on, I was like, okay, I'm going to really, I'm going to go for this. I don't do things in halves. So I was like, cool. So now I'm going to become a YouTuber <laughs> and I just put everything into it. And then yeah, the rest is history, I suppose. But yeah, that was my first video. You can still see it if you want over on my YouTube channel. Oh, they have got some really like deep questions here, which I really enjoy. So what do you wish you got to do more of as a child? Oh my gosh. I had a really good childhood or at least the parts that I remember. Maybe I've blocked out any bad parts. I mean, there were, there were things that I went through as a child that, you know, were tough. But overall, when I look back at my childhood, I just remember thinking it was really great. Specifically when we think about like, what do I wish I got to do more of as a child? My mum was a big fan of like getting her children. So like me and my sister to do as much ec extracurricular things as possible when we were younger. So like when I was younger, I played piano. I did horse riding for a bit, which makes me sound so much fancier than I am. I'm not, there's just these stables, like not that far from where we moved that I just used to go and do horse riding in the summer. It honestly makes me sound so fancy and so rich. I'm not, <laughs> it was just something that I tried. I danced. So that was the main thing that both myself and my sister did. My sister actually went on to become a, a professional dancer. Um, and then now she's a yoga teacher. I did tap ballet, modern hip hop, jazz, commercial, like ev like a lot of genres from the age of like two to 22 or something like good solid 20 years of dancing. Did I do anything else? I feel like I did other, oh, I did gymnastics at one point. My mum would just put us in a lot of stuff. And then we got to a certain age where she was like, okay, pick one, which I was so grateful for. Cause I felt like I was doing a lot. And she was probably thinking I can't afford to carry on. You used <laughs> to carry on paying for you to do all these things. So I picked dance and my sister picked dance. And then I went on to carry on doing that and all through uni as well. And I absolutely loved it. And it completely shaped me as a person. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And there was almost a point where my, I wanted to quit. I remember I was about 16, which is usually when people want to quit things. And I was getting annoyed of like giving up. I dance like every Wednesday evening and then all day Saturday from literally like 9am to 6pm, I would be in dance class and all my friends would be out and I was getting really jealous and I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I remember my mum saying like, you can quit a few genres, but you have to keep like tap because I was really good at tap ballet because ballet is like the foundation of like everything um and modern and I was so grateful that she made me keep those because that's what I carried through to uni wouldn't have met my fiance some of my best friends in the world if I didn't join the dance team at uni so yeah basically long story short I genuinely felt like I did a lot when I was younger and I don't think there was anything more I could have done so a really positive response to that I actually don't I'm happy with all the things that I got to do when I was younger did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up yes so I have always for as long as I can remember not counting when I wanted when I used to want to be a professional dancer because that was when I was like little and I wanted to be like Beyonce's backup dancer once I grew out of that phase and realized that I was not talented enough to become Beyonce's backup dancer I wanted to work in marketing marketing and advertising I don't know where it came from I used to really like adverts I still really like adverts I used to really like adverts and I loved the idea of me being really creative but also like having like a corporate-ish job, like not corporate, like suits corporate, but like going to an office and stuff like that, but working in something that felt really creative. So I always wanted to work in marketing and that was always what I had my sights set on. Even when I was picking my GCSE subjects, my A-levels, my degree, it's all been leading up to a world of marketing. I also always knew I wanted to have my own business. So I think I've become incredibly lucky because I've managed to merge those two things together. So 
yeah, I did kind of always know what I wanted to do when I was older. How old am I? Oh, I will never tell. No, I'm joking. I'm 30. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you be? London, which is where I am right now. <laughs> I love London. I adore it. I know not everyone agrees, but I absolutely adore it. And there are other places that myself and, and Jamie would love to live just for short periods of time. Like I'd love to live like in Portugal for a bit, maybe in Jamaica. That's where I'm from for a little while. I would also love to live in like South America for a bit. But when I say live, I'm not talking like for years and years. I want to like go to somewhere for like six months at a time. And that is what we'll do probably when we have really small kids, but also when our kids like grow up, we will do stuff like that. Like when we we retire that's what our life will be but in terms of like where my base is London I absolutely love London I don't want to be anywhere else <laughs> okay next question what does authenticity mean to you this is a really good question for me specifically when it comes to being authentic online I just believe that means showing up as who you truly are and I think there could be a lot of misconceptions when it comes to authenticity especially on social media because people believe that to be authentic you need to be negative or you need to be exposing a part of yourself that maybe the average person doesn't want to. So for example, people might believe that in order for you to be seen as authentic online, you need to cry or you need to share an element of your life that's really personal and that's really hard for you to talk about. Now, if that is something that you naturally would do, if that is your personality type to be super vulnerable online, if that is something that genuinely makes you feel better, then that is authentic to you. However, there are a lot of people who do not feel comfortable doing that online, who are more private, who maybe don't show emotion in that way. And for them to force themselves to go ahead and cry in their content or do anything similar to that, that is not authentic. That is just doing something out of pressure and because they feel like they need to in order to be seen as authentic. So I literally feel like authenticity is literally just being yourself. That that's all it is. If you're someone who has a really dry sense of humor, then it's having that sense of humor in your content. If you're someone who is very corporate and official, then it's being really corporate and official. Like it's just not pretending to be someone else. It's just literally showing up as yourself. And I do not take for granted how difficult that can be for a lot of people. Like it truly is a skill. So I don't by any means think that's an easy thing to do, but that is how I perceive authenticity. Next question. Are there days where you just don't want to work or not? Smiley face kiss. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. There are definitely days where I don't want to work. I'm not going to lie to you. Those days are few and far between. I felt like I would have those days quite frequently when I worked in like a nine to five job, even though I did like my job. I definitely had days where I was like, oh my God, I just don't want to work. I had like the Sunday scaries. Is that what they're called? You know, on a Sunday where you're like, oh my God, I don't want to go in. I definitely used to get that. Do not get me wrong. I don't get that anymore, largely because I am so in control of my schedule that there is no reason for me to be scared of a Monday. Day. Like if I don't like the Monday that I've got coming up, then I just will change it. Do you know, you know, <laughs> so that is the beautiful thing about working for yourself. And I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to have gotten to that stage of my business. But there are days where I just don't want to work more often than not. I have days where I don't want to do specific tasks. And I encourage you, if you're someone who feels like you frequently have days where you don't want to work to actually get to the bottom as to whether or not you don't want to work at all, or if there's just specific things that you don't want to do, because that's really where the difference is. So I learned that sometimes I don't want to create content. Like I'm having a content day today. I'm feeling it. I feel like chatting. I feel like getting a microphone and a camera in my face. I've created a lot of content today already. I'm just in the mood for it. But there are several days where I don't want to create content. That's like a common, a common thing for me. I'll wake up and I'll be like, I just don't have it in me to sit and talk and present. Like, I just want to be like, 
you know, horizontal on the couch with my laptop on my lap. So sometimes I have days where I don't want to create content. Other days I have days where I don't want to do admin. Like there are certain tasks that I have to do as part of my job where I don't want to do them all the time. And sometimes I'm in a very privileged position where if I don't want to do something, I don't do it. That doesn't happen all the time. But sometimes like with filming, I can be like, okay, well, I'm just not going to film today. I'm going to film tomorrow. And that is an incredible situation to be in. Other times, and this is more frequent, it's not up to me. Other times it's like, okay, you might not want to film, but you've got a deadline for a sponsorship. Or okay, you might not want to update your website, but you have to because of X, Y, Z. So a lot of the time, discipline is the thing that gets me through working when I don't want to work, but also being able to isolate what it is exactly I don't want to work on. So on days where I decide I'm not going to film content, I don't just give my off the day off I just do other things you know how to keep yourself safe from social media hacking tips oh this is a good one and I wish I had a really robust answer for you but at the moment I don't the best tip I could give you is to turn on two-factor authentication like do that for everything that you can this basically means that no one can sign into your account without having to confirm a code that will be sent to like your mobile number or to your email address so unless they have access to your mobile and your email which they probably won't they won't be able to log into your Instagram account. So that's the biggest tip. But honestly, that is the main tip that I've got for you. There aren't many other things that you can do. The obvious other one is like have a strong password, change your password on a regular basis, of course. But other than that, two-factor authentication. Meta Verified, which is being rolled out currently to loads of markets, is basically a service which will allow you to pay for like the verified blue check mark. But in addition to that, you get access to like a chat service where you can troubleshoot issues that you're having and supposedly you get a lot more protection from like hackers and scammers. So I don't have that yet. I'm in the UK. It's not rolled out to the UK at the time of filming, but I've heard okay things. So that could be something you might want to explore, but obviously that will come at a monthly cost. At the time of filming, it is $14.99 per month. Okay. I'm really enjoying this. Um, how and when did your social media journey actually start? interesting question. There's a few answers to this. In terms of when I actually started using social media for like business purposes, literally since I was like 19, which was about 11 years ago, I did work experience where I was managing this startup apps, Twitter account. A lot of my work experience was to do with social media. And then I also had like side hustles since I was like 21 on the side. And I always used Instagram specifically to grow those businesses and those side hustles. So from a technical perspective, I guess like maybe 11 years ago. In regards to like my influencing and my content creation and my, my more recent stuff, I guess you would say it started with my other account, Orange Collective, that I used to run with my fiance. We started that in 2019 um, and we ran that for a couple of years. We started working with brands and monetized it within a couple of months. And it was a really great like side income, side hustle that we had going for a few years. My actual brand, the one that you know right now, so Jade Beeson, that was developed November 2020. That was when I uploaded my very first YouTube video. That was when I had my first Instagram post as well, I believe. So it's actually not very old at all. And then the creator project, which is the podcast that you're currently listening to and my media company is... I mean, at the time of filming, it hasn't even launched yet. So by the time you're hearing this, it's probably like a couple days or a couple weeks old. <laughs> 
So I hope that gives you a good conclusive answer. I've been in the world of social media for a very long time, um, I guess is the the short answer to that. (laughs) Okay, so someone else here asked about getting a first brand partnership from proposal to taking payment would be dope. Okay, so the thing about this question is if I was to really answer every single part about how to go from your first brand partnership to getting payment, I would need probably about 10 hours plus of content. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to, and this might be what the question is originally asking, to be fair, I'm going to tell you my story of my first brand partnership for this brand, Jade Beeson, because I can't remember the, the story for my other one for Orange Collective. So for this one, I pitched to this brand. I noticed that they sold a service that was super aligned with the content that I was creating on YouTube. I was only how far was I into my YouTube journey? About six to seven months. I had between 1,000 and 2,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I was like, I'm ready. I want to start working with brands. So I pitched this brand. I wrote a pitch message, which to be honest, would be very different now. But essentially what it was, was me talking about my value offering, which is something that I encourage everyone to think about. So that is essentially what is the value that you could offer this brand. For me, I was offering the fact that I had a very specific niche audience who were interested in their service already. And I even had screenshots of people asking for my recommendations in relation to their service. So I could prove like, look, my audience want to hear about you. So I led with that. And as a result of that pitch, they responded to me. We negotiated back and forth over email. I then had a phone call with them, which was great. It was a lot easier for me to close the deal that way. I was the one who suggested the phone call because we weren't agreeing on the price. I'm not telling you the brand name so I can tell you how much we were negotiating. I think they originally came in with a hundred pounds and then the final rate was 330 pounds for three videos. So it was almost a thousand pounds, which was great for me considering that I had about 2000 followers, but I was getting good views. I had a very specific audience. My value offering was clear. So it was easier, not easy, but you know, I was able to communicate why they should work with me and they agreed. They signed it off. They then issued a contract, which I signed. Although I will say actually, fun story, I didn't sign it straight away. When I reviewed the contract, there was a lot more deliverables than the ones that we agreed on. That basically means things that I have to do. They had things like an interview for their website and all this stuff that we didn't agree on. So I went back and asked them to remove it they pushed back a bit on it and they're like, everyone else is doing it. And I was like, we can do it if you're going to pay me more, which they did not want to. So they removed it from the contract. And fun fact about that, a year after that deal, they popped up in my inbox and was like, hey, you still owe us an interview. By this time, the contract had expired and I had specifically asked to remove the interview from the contract because they weren't paying me more for it. So I thought it was so ballsy for them to email me a year later and be like, you owe us an interview when I did not owe them an interview. And obviously I told them that and they didn't respond to me. (laughs) But the partnership itself was good. Um, Once the contract was signed, they sent me a brief. I created the content for them. They had some feedback. I did push back on some of the feedback. The thing is when you're a YouTube creator, if the feedback is a lot and you actually need to refilm as a result of it, I always recommend pushing back because if they're asking for things that weren't included in the brief, but require you to refilm, that's not fair. They should have included it in the brief. So we did have a little bit of back and forth and we eventually got to a place where both of us were really happy with the end result. That was just for the first video. There were three videos in total. And then I set it live about a week later And then the same day it went live, I sent them an invoice for my payment, 30 day payment terms, and they paid me within 30 days. And that was it. We did three videos, performed really, really well for both of us. Yeah, it was a really good experience. Apart from a bit of back and forth, which is common, unfortunately, 
that was it. Okay, this is a really good question. When do you know it's the right time to hire help, like a VA or even a full-time employee? So I always recommend that people do an audit of their time spent. This is what I did. I do this all the time. Write down every single thing you do in a week and write down how much time it takes you to do each thing. You'll clearly see which tasks are taking the most amount of time. And out of those tasks, you want to identify the ones which you can hand over. So, you, I mean, realistically, you can hand over most things. But for example, if one of the tasks is you filming reels of yourself, you probably can't hand that over because you need to be in the reel. There will be other tasks on there that you don't need to do. So for example, for me, it was video editing. Like I very quickly realized that that was taking the most amount of time. It was taking like eight hours a week. I didn't need to be the person to edit all my videos. So I hired my video editor and we've worked together ever since. So he's actually editing this podcast as well. Ed does all my editing for me. So that is the steps that I went through. And those are the steps that I recommend other people go through because that will help you identify who to hire. In regards to when to hire, it's a bit of a complex question and the answer will be different for different people. I normally recommend that you think about a couple of different things. The first is your budget. So I just recommend that if you've got income coming in that you do not need to survive and you know that there is someone you need to hire, you dedicate that income to the hire, right? That's my usual thing. You reinvest that money unless you need that income to survive. Outside of that, you will know when it's the right time to hire. If you feel like you're struggling and you really need help, you probably should have hired a couple of weeks ago. You kind of want to hire just before you feel that pinch. Okay, so I'm just going to answer one more question, guys. And then I think I'm going to keep all of the rest of the questions and do a part two because there's still so many coming through, which is great. So the last question, how to deal with other people's opinions when posting a lot? What a great question. I think the first thing I'll say is this is a work in progress in terms of how we absorb other people's opinions and try not to hold yourself to this standard of not caring about what anyone is saying ever, because there are very few people who ever reach that level. And it's totally fine if you every now and again, an opinion annoys you. Like let yourself feel those feelings. Give yourself permission to be annoyed every now and again. However, when it comes to general management of other people's opinions, there are a few things that I really live by. And you've got to really let these, these phrases sit with you for you to really understand the power of them because we hear them a lot and they often go in one ear and out the other. So one of the main ones is that other people's opinions are none of your business. Someone out there has a negative opinion on you. They may never share it with you because they're not the kind of person who just spreads hate online, right? But they they have a negative opinion of you and they probably will never meet you and you'll probably never know that they have this opinion. Because you never knew that they had this opinion on you, this opinion has never affected you in any way, shape or form. This doesn't mean that that opinion didn't exist. It just meant that the opinion never had a chance to really resonate with you and throw you off your game. The same way that opinion never had a chance to really impact you, we don't want to let these other opinions that did come into our orbit impact us too. They don't deserve the right to throw us off our game, especially when these opinions are hateful, right? Opinions which are feedback are feedback and we should listen to them. If someone's saying that your audio is rubbish, then you probably need to get a new mic, right? Let's take on board feedback. But when it comes to opinions that are negative and hateful, do not give them any power and do not let them dictate the decisions that you make and your future. It's absolutely wild. There are tons of negative opinions out there. We shouldn't give any of them our time. So that's something to keep in mind. The final thing I would say, just a bit of a tip here, is to figure out whose opinions you want to take on board and really prioritize getting their feedback and opinions as much as you can. Because what we don't want to do is like put our hands 
hands over our ears and just act like we can't hear anything and be like, can't hear anyone. Everything's fine. My content's great. That's not going to help you either. Instead, you want to make sure you are getting opinions and feedback from people. It doesn't have to just be people you know. It could be people in your community who you've never met, but make sure there's some kind of dialogue and ability for you to get feedback, right? And take that feedback on board because that way you know that when you get these opinions and feedbacks, it will be presented in a constructive way and it will allow you to continuously improve your content without having to give too much importance to the negative feedback and the negative opinions out there. So I hope, I hope that helps. That's basically how I manage it. All right, guys, I think I want to do a part two because first of all, I absolutely enjoyed doing this. And also there are so many more questions coming through. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question and thank you to everyone listening. If you love this episode, I would be so grateful if you left me a review and shared it with someone else who would find this useful. I especially love it when you guys share that you've been listening to the podcast on your Instagram stories and tag me. I really, really appreciate seeing those. Thank you so much for listening as always. I can't wait to speak to you in my next episode. You've just listened to an episode of The Creator Project. We upload new episodes every single week. So if you've not hit that subscribe or follow button yet, then what are you doing? Be sure to hit subscribe or follow before you leave so that you don't miss out on our new content. If you feel like supporting our podcast, we would absolutely love it if you could leave us a review and share our podcast with someone else who might get value from it. Don't forget to hit us up on our socials. Links can be found in the show notes. Thanks again. We'll speak soon.